Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Mark Koyama and Jared Rubin, who are economics professors at George Mason University and Chapman University, respectively, and co-authors of the fascinating new book, How the World Became Rich, The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. The book, which has received a ton of positive reviews and comments, asks the fundamental question, what explains the extraordinary growth in wealth and prosperity that countries like Canada have experienced over the past 200 or 300 years. I'm grateful to speak to them about this question and how they've come to think about the answers. Mark and Jared, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Thanks for that intro and thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Sean. We're very happy to be here. You you may have seen, gentlemen, that The Economist magazine recently published an article about how, quote, the West fell out of love with economic growth. It it points to, among other things, a drop in references to economic growth and how political parties talk about their priorities. Let's start with a two-part question. First, why do you think so much of our political discourse has come to focus on issues like equality and less on growth? And second, in that context, why did you write this book? I I know the article. I've seen it, but I've I've not read it. So I currently have the economist subscription, but I think it's definitely right. So I think it's, you know, there has been a, a, a less, less emphasis on growth politically and in our, kind of like, you know, our discourse. I think the turning point was probably the financial crisis. And I think the Occupy movement and then the rise in interest in inequality in 2010, and then the rise of populism and the, the kind of increasing attention to kind of parts of our society who kind of either have lost out or feel they've lost out and been left behind and rise of popularism and, and and Donald Trump and Brexit and so on. So that's been the shift. And it's understandable, perhaps, there was a shift after the financial crisis. And, uh, you know, the, 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 our perceptions about how well the economy is doing were, were kind of reset in some sense. So I, I, I don't think it's entirely like un, unsurprising or even entirely a bad thing that it's, we've moved away to some degree of a margin. But I think we've overshot. So, so economic growth is vitally important, and that's why we wanted to write this book. And and so inequality, um, things like this, so matter, things like global warming now take a lot of attention. And often we think in a kind of, I think a little bit of a naive naive way, that there's a trade-off where more economic growth is going to destroy destroy you know natural environment, maybe via global warming through the emission of carbon carbon dioxide and so on. But um, we think it's been a, a, a um, overshooting part of the motivation for the book because actually our perspective is more that 
economic growth you know, means more resources. That means more resources potentially if you want to distribute to poorer people or more resources to funnel towards uh, technolo technological change, things like carbon capture, nuclear fusion. And so economic growth, I think, is something that we are able to get around and a large proportion of people should be able to agree is good. And that's actually a way to build consensus in potentially fractured society. So it's it's bad that we've lost this focus on growth and it's it's um yeah it's it, it needs to be turned around and otherwise you have very zero sum conflicts in society about redistributing the existing set of resources and that can be a source of conflict. Yeah, and maybe I can uh address part of the second half of the question. Yes, I mean I completely agree with Mark, you know, what what Mark just said. And I think one thing I'd add that also gets at your second question is that while it is quite understandable, you know, especially in the last decade plus, that you know, within country inequality has become more of an issue. And frankly, in, in a, there's plenty of research that even suggests inequality can lead to slowing of growth within within countries. The real the, the one of the real issues, and it's why I think one of the real issue reasons why Mark and I wanted to write this book and present all of this amazing work that's been done both you know by ourselves but you know really by others is that when we think about cross-country inequality that's where growth really you 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 don't overcome that without economic growth if if you think about the very poorest people in the world or frankly you know the, just the bottom 20 percent who are still quite poor that that does not go away by by the types of policies that rich countries use to say redistribute wealth or address issues of inequality it requires economic growth and understanding the mechanisms through which that happens whether it be kind of the initial spurts of growth that happened in uh in britain in the 18th and really uh, 19th centuries or have happened frankly even you know in the the 21st century you know especially in a place like china it's you know there are different mechanisms that have that that have been true for different parts of the world, but understanding what those are at least kind of helps us frame the question in a, in a much better way. And I think for most, I would even say yeah, probably most people who get into economics at some point, whether it be actually doing it for a job or just enjoy reading about it or thinking about it, one of those big issues is well, what can we do to to get you know, the, the the poorest people in the world out of out of out of that situation, and I think you know, the one thing that this book at least tries to do, and I like to think we did it very successfully, is really present the the various insights that many in the last say ten to fifteen years have had on the various uh, ways that this can happen. Before we get into some of those mechanisms, Jared, let me ask the two of you a bit of a contextual question. How are we able to assess the rate of economic growth in historical societies? What data or methodologies enable you to go back thousands of years? Yeah, I mean, of course, no one was calculating per capita GDP in like, you know, Song Dynasty China or Renaissance Italy or, or so on. So, you know, the, as many of your listeners and readers will know, the, the history of GDP accounting, it's, it's really a 20th century phenomenon. And it's really people like uh, John Maynard Keynes and Simon Kuznets who were responsible for putting together these accounts. But the, the methodology used you know, in a modern era where you're adding up all the income or all the expenditure or the output and putting a, a market value on it, that methodology can be extended backwards so long as there's adequate data. 
And the definition of adequate data is, is you know, that, that's where, where we may, sometimes may have to stretch it a little bit. And, uh, but, but certainly people managed to push it, have pushed it back to 1870 and it's very reliable and it's, it's very high quality data. And then for, for many economies, you could push it back to 1820 and it's still very good. And then going back to 1820, you kind of have to think, make a few more assumptions, but countries like England have pretty high quality data and you can do it in different ways, um, income side, expenditure side, and you get relatively similar estimates back to around the 13th century, with some disagreements amongst different scholars about the precise details. Other countries, it's a little harder. And so there have been these pioneering attempts to do this. The, the, the guy who's most famous for working on this is Angus Madison, who um, who, who was a, based in the Netherlands, who's an economic historian, and he's the name. So often you'll see the Madison data set or Madison project uh, works. But Madison, Madison was like one guy, and sometimes he was making a lot of assumptions. And so what's happened in the last kind of 15 years is, you know, various teams of researchers have worked in countries like Spain or Portugal and really kind of from the ground up produced much better quality data for those countries, France as well has been revised. And so what, what I would just say is the, the data, pretty com we know with very high degree of certainty that, you know, medieval France or England were not rich like Canada or the United States are rich. We know that, you know, uh, sure. Do we have, you know, are we as sure about the exact comparison was, was 1376 a worse year than 1336? Like that's, that's more of a margin of error thing. And similarly, there have been pioneering efforts to extend this work to China and India, which is actually vital to answer the types of questions we're, we're interested in, because we're interested in the global kind of rise of economic growth and, and global differences between countries. And that, that work is, is pioneering because it's replacing basically a vacuum. We, we had nothing before. But actually, often the, the evidence we're using or people are using is slimmer than you have for, say, England. And so it's still a work in progress. But I, but I think we know more than one might naively think if one didn't know what's been done in the last 15 years. It, uh, that's a great answer, Mark. Just as an aside, I know it sounds like a wonky subject, but one of the most fascinating histories I've read in the past five or 10 years is a book by the Canadian economic historian Duncan McDowell about the creation of the Canadian system of national accounts and the kind of politics of that process, some of the intrigue behind that process. Listeners interested in the subject, I'd recommend the book. It's called The Sum of the Satisfactions, Canada in the Age of National Accounting. Let's move now, if it's okay with, with you and Mark, Jared, to one of the most important two questions that those interested in the subject of the origins of economic growth invariably ask, which is when and where. That is to say, it's notable that economic growth starts to take off in the mid-18th century, and also that it seems to start in England. Let's cover both, starting with the timing. Why did it take so long for humans to generate high rates of economic growth? And what was it about the mid-18th century, in your view, that enabled it? I guess I can start with this. Uh, I, I, I mean, I think that you know both answer the the answer to both questions is in a sense the same. In that, you know, one thing that we argue in this book is that you know there's no there was no silver bullet, and there was certainly no silver bullet in say mid 18th century, early 19th century England. There were a series of things that kind of needed to come together 
England happened to have all of these. Um, so, you know, for instance, we look at something that historically has been often quite good for economic growth, even though in and of itself is not sufficient, something like limited governance, you know, constraints on what rulers can do. This is something that as early or maybe even as late as uh, the, you know, the, the 17th century England had. There were other places that had it, though. So the Dutch certainly had it in the um, probably as early as maybe in the 16th century, once they broke free from Spain and other you know, smaller places, you, you would say had it, you know, certainly something like some some city states would have had it. This is all to say that that this is one important thing that we have then seen afterwards, especially after England took off or Britain took off, has been quite important elsewhere, even though, again, not sufficient. China has grown rapidly, say, in the last 40 years without having almost any constraint on executive power. But there were there were other things, too, that, you know, the, that the literature is cited as being you know quite important. So somebody like, you know, Joel Moikir, you know, one of the 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 real godfathers of recent work on industrialization would say something you know, England had a large set of skilled workers. And this this goes back to for you know several historical reasons. Um, again, though, this would be something that England had that other places had as well, especially kind of the independent cities of Central Europe, the northern Italy, the low countries, et cetera. It also had large external markets, or sorry, internal markets. This would be something that might have been made it a little different from the Dutch Republic, which was much smaller. It also had access to the Atlantic. This is something that you can then say, it, to the extent that you think the Atlantic mattered and the, the markets of the Atlantic mattered, and many do in the literature, that would at least give some idea on the timing. Certainly, you know that means it's not really going to happen before, say, 1600, when you really start getting, it's not just the finding of you know, the finding, quote unquote, of the new world, but it's really, you know, there being some economic activity happening in the new world that that translates into uh, growth in in Europe. And yeah, there, there's there are a series of other other things as well. And I think so when we say, well, why did it happen when and where it did? The where is England, in a sense, got a little lucky. A lot of the things you know we describe in the book that have been described in much more greater detail in the literature would suggest that you know nothing about this was necessarily preordained. Well, maybe except for the fact that England's like an island and has coal in the north. But even then, again, even something like coal, which you know might be a geographical feature, there's plenty of places with easy to access coal, you know, the Ruhr Valley, large parts of China, that again may mean that it's probably might have been necessary, at least for England to develop the way it did, but not sufficient. The exact timing. One could imagine it, it certainly could have happened a little earlier or, you know, had a few things gone wrong. I think it's actually more likely that it could have happened much later had these things not kind of congealed at, at one time. And then we can say, you know, after after stuff happens in Britain, you you no longer need to reinvent the wheel. So these other places you know, start getting both the, not just the technology. It's not, it's not just top technology adoption, but it's whether you want to call it culture or ideology or something that really favors innovation and views towards innovation, that, that innovation can be used for the betterment of mankind, things like that, that be, end up being really important. And of course, the the, the technical know-how as well. Um, and eventually, by the mid, mid to late 19th century, kind of the, the marriage of science and technology becomes quite important. And by that point, that, that requires a whole host of different things like, you know, schools and 
you know, much higher human capital, both for the broader population in terms of, uh, say, secondary schooling and even at a higher level of education for leading scientists and things like that. So but but that's kind of after the story. I think when we get to the 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 mid to late 18th century, early 19th century Britain, there's no there's no one answer. I think it's a series of answers that just so happen to to congeal there. Mark, do you want to pick that up at all? Yeah, I just briefly add. I think Jared's exactly right, and that that's one way of looking at it is to say it's a very hard question to answer. Like why why what like why did growth begin in England? Because there's a multiplicity of factors, basically, which is what Jared's outlined, and none, no single one of them was determinative. The other way you can flip it around is to say why did all these other episodes of economic growth kind of fail? And you could think that actually, you know, in a sense. If you if you understand kind of I don't know like, like of you know, kind of economics, you might think that you know there, there are quite a few conditions under which you know with reasonable security of property and reasonable kind of background conditions, people would start just trading and and specialising and improving things of a margin and gradually you know, it'd be very slow but gradually you can imagine some prosperity emerging, people specialising as merchants or traders, more trading networks beginning. And so you might think that actually there should have been growth, you know, as soon as there were, were agrarian societies, large-scale agrarian societies. And so, and there was some growth, but but it never, it never came anything close to what we've observed after the Industrial Revolution. And so why did it stop? And what one way of thinking about that is to think, well, there always, it's always negative feedback. There was always negative feedback, at least. So there was, um, there were negative shocks like war being invaded. Especially if you were prosperous, you would get attacked by some neighbor who wants your stuff. Or there was kind of you know massive disease epidemics, which you know could constitute major shocks to, to the demography of societies. Or there was you know some some other kind of, you know decision, political decision to close a country off to trade or something like that. So another way to think about it is like there are loads of other episodes where growth was bubbling up, but some some combination of negative forces pushed it back down again and so it's sort of up again and um the english case then is is it one of those episodes in some sense it's like another commercial prospect trade driven episode really beginning in the 17th century we now think like the the, 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 the initial prosperity and then it's just the negative shocks were not big enough to push it down again and then, and then the back. One of the decisive things which Jerry mentioned at the end was the, the science. So, so one of the things, and this is uh, again a John McKay point, that so the, the scientific revolution which occurs in the 17th, 17th century, really, initially doesn't have a huge amount to do with industrial revolution or economic growth, but it it means there's a a background set of kind of knowledge, mathematical knowledge, a lot of it, which means that it's then possible to, you know, once you've reached the end of what you can improve with tinkering and trial by error. There's now these scientific principles, which it turns out you can apply, you know, improving the, these, these processes. And so that's the 19th century then is, is a period where you get the marriage of science and technology, the application of, of scientific knowledge to like making better goods for the economy. And that's really very transformative. Jared mentioned that over time, it, people came to recognize the the broad based benefits of of growth. I want to I want to take that subject up if that's okay, and and ask you to talk a bit about the distributional effects of early economic growth and what explains the transmission of growth into improved living standards across the population. In other words, 
How is it that economic growth was not merely captured by capitalists as Marx and others might have anticipated? It, so initially, so one thing I would say is that almost all growth episodes are unequal. So now, like economists and people often wring their hand. Like there are some people who who always say, you know, economic growth in India or China, it's good, it's great, but look, it's not 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 everyone is benefiting, and the rich are getting richer. And in some sense, that's that's part of what you know. It's almost an inevitable part of the process. But some people get benefit more than others, and the, the moral justification for economic growth doesn't it, it rests on the fact that in the long run these benefits are going to be distributed more evenly than they maybe are initially so I, so the british industrial revolution is a more extreme version of that if anything the 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 people who get rich are those who are able to either benefit from the entrepreneurship directly or politically capture some share of this and so you know landed elites benefit initially as the demand for food goes up with these budgeting factories and so on Whereas a lot of the workers initially, well, whether they benefited or I, there were benefits, but the distribution of benefits was skewed towards the factory owners and so on. So that's why when Engel, when Marx and Engels, but particularly Engels writes a book on the condition of the working class in Manchester in the 1840s. The 1840s is the decade of chartism. It's a decade of a lot of social unrest. It's the last actual decade of Britain of serious social unrest because actually by 1850 and, and thereafter, there are pretty dramatic improvements to the living standards of ordinary people in Britain. But the initial um, deca decades of industrialization saw the economy dramatically transform itself, saw aggregate GDP really go up a lot, but the population more than triples, almost quadruples between 1750 and 1830. So they're more mouths to feed. Between the 1790s and 1815, Britain's fighting basically a world war against France, which is which which involves, you know, mobilizing tremendous resources. The taxes are quite high and they're quite regressive. They fall on the poor. And so a combination of these factors, as well as this quite disruptive technological change, which is in some cases putting people out of work, as well as employing more people, does does generate losers as well as winners. But Marx is wrong in, in because Marx uh, looks at the situation in 1840 and he thinks what industrialization does is immiserate workers over time. And that, that that's, I mean, it's both theoretically kind of unsound, but it's also, empiric, it turns out to be empirically unsound in the long run. But the point I initially would make is just that it, it, the Industrial Revolution initially definitely benefited the rich more than the poor. And this is, you know, and, you know, if, if, an optim, if, a, if a benevolent policymaker went back in time, they would probably design some policies differently. You know, and, I'm, and, and neither me or Jared saying we should go back to the labor laws of the early 19th century or endorsing uh, particular policies pursued by you know British state at that time. But, but in the long run, living standards went up and they obviously went up dramatically. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. 
some, like economist Robert Gordon, have argued that the era that you're studying is something of an aberration and that long-run growth is poised to slow down. What do you, you think of that argument? Is there something unique in the, in the period that you studied? Or is it an experience that can be replicated into the future? Maybe I can take this first. And um, uh, yeah, Mark, if, you know, this might not be something we necessarily have full, are full, in full agreement on, because this is kind of more of an implication of the book rather than something in the book itself. Yeah, I mean, you know, so Gordon, Gordon does make a convincing case, I think, on some, on some margins. And it's certainly true that the, the period, you know, that we've been talking about here since, say, Britain in the late 18th century and then you know, spreading to the much of the world the last 200 years is much is, is the is the aberration in world history. It's definitely not the norm. Uh, you know, throughout throughout world history, you would get these, you know, as Mark was just noting, these kind of efflorescence, efflorescences of growth that then just petered out mainly due to demographic factors, you know, what is widely known as the Malthusian trap, where people would just essentially have more babies and those babies would eat the surplus. So what's different now is, or what is different in the last, you know, couple of centuries is the rate of technological change has increased many, many, many fold. This is now in the last century or century plus has been supported by the growth of human capital, you know, particularly education and even in higher education and massive investments in states by that. But I think that what one thing that has been uh, kind of clear in the last at least few decades is that we're we have seen some sort of slowdown in the the rate of technological change, even with the uh, advent and spread of the internet and then things like smartphones, the, you know, smartphones possibly in a sense, even being more important because it really gets that type of technology out to poor people and the, the rest of the world in a way that very few technologies had prior. Um, the question is whether the lessons from the last couple hundred years are that this is something that is there there was a there's a massive amount of low-hanging fruit that was hanging around to be picked or is this something that we can that will continue to to arise i'm actually more of a tech optimist i think um and certainly than gordon and i think um you know there's a recent article by moik here that suggests he's also kind of on more on the tech, tech optimist side in that one thing that i think that we see happening again and again with these technologies is you just don't know where where the or what what the purpose or the 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 economic purpose of these these uh new technologies i mean i think ai is the most obvious one that much like some of the previous technologies it has the chance to end the world but it also has a chance to be fundamentally transformative in ways that frankly are unimaginable to not just the three of us but the people that are actually making these technologies and that's true that's been true of practically every techno major technology of the last 150 years uh you know you think like stuff like automobiles you know certainly certainly kind of tr really all types of transport i mean definitely something like the internet you know you had people as late as the mid 90s you know very smart people saying that this was you know just kind of a flash in the pan and wouldn't wouldn't fundamentally change the way that that businesses were run. So if anything, I would I would say that, well, it's a combination of things. One, I think that technology in the last since we have as 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 humanity been able to kind of harness innovation as something that is regularly done has shown a an amazing ability to continue to 
create technologies that fundamentally trans transform the way that we interact with the world. And I'd say second is that there's actually still a lot of low hanging fruit out there left. Getting these types of technologies and especially technologies that require little human human power to work, you know, some certainly something like AI, getting these to the poorest parts of the world and whether it be doing tasks that previously required a ton of manual labor, whether it be spreading capital to its most highly valued uses in ways that either you know pol politics or other things had previously made impossible. There's a lot, there's a there's still so much out there that I at least, you know, I would even say in my lifetime, with a massive caveat that, you know, the environment, uh, environmental degradation and you know the um the, the Terminator scenario on AI, you know, could have serious impacts on, on, on the world. I mean, or, or and obviously a nu nuclear weapons as well. In the absence of those things, I'm, I'm much more of a tech optimist based on, you know, my own and really the research done by many, many others on this over the last about technology in the last couple of centuries. Can jump in briefly just to add to what Jared said. So I think the, the, my view is the right way to read what Gordon says, and, and which is not the way I think he says it or has said it in some places. But the right way is to, to think about it is um, that the, the technological change is not linear. So at least the way it's impact on the economy is not linear. And so what happened in the late 19th, the period he talks about, which is really late 19th century to like World War II, is there are these amazing complementarities. So it's like the the like germ theory of disease happens to come about or be discovered or become mainstream around about the same time as you have states kind of willing to make massive investments in public health and build like sewer systems. And things like, you know, like the, the combustion engine comes about, uh, you know, like these things are coming about simultaneously and they complement each other. So you get these like payoff after payoff after payoff. So the, the, the possibilities of the world economy were really transformed by those technologies in a way that you know we don't see that rate of, of cumulative kind of like progress earlier and we probably don't see it after like world war ii or after 1970 let's say but there's no reason why it can't happen again basically i'm not saying it's happening now or it will happen but there's no inherent reason why you can't get a kind of adding together of different technologies and the, the sum is bigger than the individual parts added together, if, if you understand what I'm saying. So that can happen again. That can happen again, basically. And maybe it is happening, but I'm, I'm not enough of an expert about things like AI or, or, or new diffusion to, to, to tell you it is, but um, it could be happening. And um, the only thing I would say is we have seen things slower, progress slower than we might have thought, often perhaps due to regulatory concerns. So for example, you know, like, Probably the three of us all remember the, the discussion about self-driving cars. About seven, I'm, I'm thinking almost 10 years ago, so, so many years ago at least, uh, like more than five years ago, I remember discussing with my colleagues, you know, all the things that self-driving cars could do, eliminating car parks, right? And how much real estate that would free up. And, and we thought that self-driving cars would be a thing by 2025. And in some sense, the technology is there, but my understanding about it is the legal liability but what happens when a self-driving car kills somebody is just too too difficult for regulators to, to overcome. So there, there are other things which are slow, which is which have slowed us down. Maybe they should slow us down rather than the actual technology itself. 
Yeah, I'd like to add, add one more thing to that. Sorry, um, that you know, Mark says, and I agree with him that there's no real reason to see that we should necessarily expect this to not repeat itself. And I think one reason that we actually should expect it to repeat itself that has been noted by several uh, actually prominent economists is that as more and more of the world becomes rich, as we describe it in this book, and again, by rich, I don't necessarily mean, you know, making 100,000 plus a year, you know, we essentially mean a, far enough away from poverty, the, the abject poverty where you're, you're not you're worried about the very basics of life on a day-to-day -day basis. As more and more brain power can be used to not to not be worried about where the next meal, where you know where your child's healthcare is coming from, and it can be put towards more productive enterprise, you know, potentially like innovation, especially using local localized knowledge to produce such innovation. That's where the real fruits, I think, are eventually going to come from. It's it's moving from you know, people on a you know one small island in northwestern Europe to be able to have this this to you know five hopefully up to seven to eight billion people having the resources to be able to really to really do this. You know, and when we think about where kind of the the strokes of genius come from, you're as a society on an individual level, it it's just it it's kind of random. It's lucky. As at a societal level, on the other hand, the more people you have and the more people that are well fed and well, you know, and rich enough to not worry about things like that, it's just you're more likely to have continual innovation. Thanks, guys. There's just a ton of insight in those answers. Uh, just in parentheses, we're having this conversation on December 19th. Um, this episode is going to be released in early 2023. At about the same time for listeners, we'll have an episode with Manhattan Institute senior fellow and physicist Mark Mills, whose latest book, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom in a Roaring 2020s, in some ways draws on the insights of Mark and Jared about the importance of the convergence of complementary technologies as the kind of key source to that step change growth that they're talking about. You guys have been so generous with your time. I just have a few more questions for you. Um, the, the first relates to, similarly, the implications of your research, but particularly for development economics. Uh, Jared and Mark, if the preconditions for economic growth are a mix of factors, including culture, geography, and institutions, what are the implications for development economics? What should policymakers in poor countries be doing to cultivate this mix of conditions within their countries? So I think that, yeah, you can't, there's, there's a set, you inherit a set of things. Uh, you inherit, like, your, you know, your geographic, geographical position in a world is hard to change, right? And you inherit things, like cult, culture, well, can be changed of a margin, but in some sense, you know, like, an East Asian country like China inherits a particular cultural tradition, which is different to Latin American tradition. So you have to work on that. But like, the way you, you really can think about policy or things you can change is the politics, the getting the politics right and getting some sense of pro-growth coalition together. Stefan Durkin has a recent development book. I can't remember his title just now, but I, I quite like it. And but, I mean, his, and I'm simplifying his message. His message is in some sense, once political elites decide to get serious about economic growth, as opposed to rent-seeking, then in some sense, they, there, is, there is, in the current world economy, there is the know-how and the expertise and the, the, the other conditions are out there to at least make, you know, substantial progress in the way that, say, Rwanda has in the last kind of 20 years. 
So that's one way you can take it. But you have you should work within these constraints which you inherit. So if you're a landlocked sub-Saharan African country, it's going to be difficult to get a world-class textiles industry going like China or Bangladesh have. And the reason for that is because textiles are very um, low value relative to their volume. So it, you, know, you, you, want, you want to ship these out because shipping, container shipping is a very cheap way to transport these goods to, to, to America. And if you're a landlocked sub-Saharan African country, you know, it's going to be difficult to do that. And so you should you should probably specialize in a in a sector which is more kind of high value to volume, and you can rely on air transportation. So that's why you know Kenya ships a lot of flowers to to Western Europe. So there's you know, but but you have to work within those constraints. But I think the politics is where it's really hard. You've got to get a political coalition together which is going to be in favor of growth and able to resist the the kind of rent seeking interests who are going to want to siphon off resources for their own kind of narrow benefit. And I think, you know, what you can say about the British political system and the Industrial Revolution era is they did build a broad enough coalition of elites who were who were not going to, like, you know, drown the baby in the bathwater, but actually allow it to grow. Yeah, maybe if I, there's just one small thing I'd like to add to that. I you know, agree with everything Mark said is I think that one less an, an additional lesson for development economists is more of kind of, in a sense, a negative lesson. And it's more what not to do. And it's not to have a one size fits all. We need a certain type of democracy, or we need you know certain certain specific types of constraints on executives. Because the whole idea, I think, you know, as Mark was noting, you know, geography obviously plays a role in the types of things you want. Even you know, culture is going to mean that the types of institutions that we know have typically been good for economic development just work differently in different settings. So it's really having localized knowledge that matters. And yeah, again, there, there's going to be different answers in different places, but it starts with knowing that what worked in the United States and Great Britain is not is actually probably not going to work in a lot of the places that are still poor today. My penultimate question is about globalization. You know, if the goal, Mark and Jared, is to raise as many people around the world out of poverty, is there a risk that Western countries, advanced countries more generally, are flinching in the face of globalization and that a trend towards deglobalization will actually harm that progress of, of lifting people up. First of all, do you agree with that premise? And second, what should we be doing in terms of public policy to support globalization while at the same time addressing concerns from populations in advanced societies about its implications for different sectors, different workers, different different regions within our countries. Yeah, no, I, 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 I do agree that, and I think this kind of goes back to one of the things Mark was saying before, that if, you know, to the extent that that we're, we're facing problems, both in the developed, you know, the rich world and the developing world, a lot of it has to do with politics and the types of policies that in this, you know, in the case you're talking about here are maybe uh, favoring deglobalization or yeah, you know, when I think of deglobalization, I think one of the most important things I also think of is not just the movement of goods, but the movement of people, and you know, come more freer immigration from places, especially of people with even even people. Yeah, you know, it doesn't really matter the level of human capital, but particularly with high human capital going to places that where there's the greatest returns for that. That I think that's something we're clearly seeing. You know, in in North America and Western Europe. Is something that's becoming much more restrictive, frankly, in the last uh, decade or so, and that above all else might be kind of leading to not just degrowth, but 
you know, some some real long run implications for the poor parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, I think when you think about policies that I mean, I would certainly be strongly in favor of policies that open up borders, you know, to the greatest extent possible. I think that that's that's going to be among the most important things to do now again now you know i think as mark alluded to earlier you know the politics on this becomes really hard because politics on these questions in particular are becoming becoming skewed by cultural changes that are really not favorable to the, to those to those headwinds and i think you know hopefully even though it really i wouldn't say was the the primary intention for us to write this book but I think one of the the outcomes of not just books like this, but work that others are doing that really are saying, look, the world is becoming better. We, the world, as the world becomes richer, every, you know, it's not just that the rich get the, get lifted up. It's everyone can be lifted up is to understand that, you know, that, that this is, that, that this helps everyone when the world becomes richer. And it's not, it's not even from a moral perspective. I mean, I, I do think it's actually moral to, to want to lift the poorest people in the world out of poverty and not just the people in your own country. But even setting that aside, what's best for the U.S., what's best for Western Europe and, you know, and, and other rich places in terms of just their their own national accounts in the long run is certainly going to be things that lift up the rest of the world and continue to lead to whether it be yeah, globalization in terms of goods, but I think again, more more specifically and more importantly in terms of people. I'll just add very briefly that um, I think one. So, so it's unfortunate that countries like the United States have um, shifted towards being more protectionist. You know, in the last couple of years, you know, under the Trump administration, and it's not it's not been reversed under the Biden administration. I mean, only only in a most trivial way. What I would say is that one good thing about the rise of uh, many good things, but one of the good things about the rise of middle income countries, the economic growth of the last 20 years, is that it matters a little bit less. So, for example, you know, you often hear about uh, one of the ways that the rich countries keep poor countries poor is by closing off agricultural and other markets to them, right? So, access to the EU market or access to the American market is hard for poorer countries. But actually, as, as poor countries can grow, they can become markets for each other. And so, you know, Countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America can can reduce trade barriers and 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 make sign trade treaties and and there could be some growth out of that. Similarly, developments like for example, well, this is a bit parochial, but Brexit in the United Kingdom that's you know widely interpreted as a as a movement away from globalization, a movement away from trade, and it and it was in many respects. But actually, you know, there have been possibilities for the UK to sign trade deals with countries like India, and so those also possibilities. So you kind of have to grab the possibilities. There are, <laughs> even even though the, the, they're not necessarily the best ones available. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was, you know, Torpedo, is another good example of something where, where you can build, build up trade relationships and trade ties. So I'm, I'm not totally gloom and doom, but it's, I think, yeah, you don't want to shut off international markets whatsoever. And I agree with Jared. Uh, I mean, I, 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 uh, migration is a whole other topic. I don't want to say, I don't. I'll say everything I think about migration in one topic, but I think certainly of a margin, uh, you could get more more H one B visas and more green cards would benefit the world in general. Yeah. My final question is, if you could correct one misperception about economic growth, what would it be? I, okay, so I'll start with this. I mean, I think it's actually something. It was one of the first things Mark said is that that there's a trade off 
between economic growth and frankly, you know, there's a lot of things you could say after that. I think, you know, a big one is inequality, for instance. Yeah, I think another one is environmental degradation. I, you know, so taking the latter one first, you know, when it is certainly true that industrialization and its and its aftermath has been responsible for most of the or a good fraction of the environmental degradation that's happened in the last couple hundred years. But I also think there's plenty of reason to think that continued economic growth and particularly continued uh, technological change is our the most likely solution to uh, changing environment. And, you know, in fact, you know, what we just saw last week, there's a possibility of cold fusion. You know, so, you know, to the extent that that could then become something that I mean, that, that would be fundamentally transformative, both economically and environmentally. You know, the same is true of inequality. I mean, I think that, and, and again, yeah, it's something I hit on earlier that I that for me, I, I I just I do wish more people would think about when we talk about inequality is that yes, within country inequality is important, and, and I you know I do care deeply about the people that live around me. Both you know, I live in California and, and across the United States, but when we think about where the real inequality is, it's around the world. It's, you know, we have to, you know, we have to consider where people, you know, the poorest people in the United States, for instance, are still in the top, you know, 10% of the world's distribution of income and wealth. Typically, they're certainly at least in terms of income. And the types of the, the, that just means different things for the, the, the way we think about different types of policies, the way we think about different, you know, even the stuff we were just talking about with immigration, the, the the types of ways we view economic growth, I think in particular as being, you know, I, I just, I, I think that there, there's a view out there that we, that, you know, especially in the, the richer world that, you know, we have the riches we need. Now let's kind of pull the ladder up behind us. And I think that when taking, taken from a global view is just very, very wrong, in my opinion. So I, I agree 100% with uh, Jared's one. So I, I yeah, it's like, I almost, I, I'll try, I have another one, which is pro, like, so, so the, the World Bank often talks about pro poor growth and pro poor growth, like you want growth to be pro pro poor people. And they often, so you often, if you read an article, not just in, you know, a left leaning newspaper like The Guardian, but even an economist about economic growth in, in, in some middle income countries, someone like Brazil or China, they might talk about this tremendous growth and how it's been beneficial, but then they'll note that it's it's, it's also increased inequality. It's also made rich rich, and, and as if uh, and then as if this the alternative is like you know, a growth kind of controlled growth process, which which lifts makes makes the poorest people rich first, right? Some like pro egalitarian. If you applied those standards to British Industrial Revolution or to America during the late 19th century, when America is the fastest growing economy in the world, you're like, hang on, this growth is not good because it's make, making the rich richer. It's, it's like, in some sense, it, it miss, it's like you know, it's telling off countries because they're not doing it right. But the West did it in an even more inegalitarian way. So in some sense, we have to accept that that's the nature of economic growth. It will make some people be rich, and some of these people will be morally undeserving. They will be doing things we think of as frivolous, or or, or so on. But that's that's the nature of of the process, and it and, and 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 you know the reason why we think the process is important isn't because it makes some YouTuber uh, a billionaire. It's because you know the, the broader benefits it brings. But I feel that people often um, kind of like they always want that to be a trade off, which is in some sense. So in some sense, my point is a subset of Jared's point. I always want that to be a trade off of economic growth, and my view is that the 
in some sense, there's no alternative to economic growth. So uh, another another related point is to Jason Hinkle, who's an anthropologist. He's written this piece in, in Nature, Call for the Peace in Nature, and they call for countries to stop focusing on economic growth as an outcome. They should do degrowth or they should, you know, and that's going to be better for the environment, better for inequality, better for poverty and so on. But in, in some sense, it's, it's a total misunderstanding of a process because countries don't maximize economic growth. It's not like a, a lever you, you control on a, on, a, on a machine. It's an outcome of basically people innovating, people doing their work, people coming together and trading, producing new goods, uh, investing. And it's something which is very hard to control. And we only really understand it kind of ex post. So that's that's partly why me and Jared probably don't have a huge amount like concrete to say about you know technology right now because you know, it's you know at the time you see it you don't know how how it's going to pan out you don't know you don't know how transformative AI is going to be but we'll see it in thirty or forty years. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and it's a fascinating book: How the World Became Rich: The Historical Origins of Economic Growth. Mark Kama and Jared Rubin. Thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you, Sean. Thanks, Sean. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's been great. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>